Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. On this episode of HI 101, my guest Phil Downey and I discuss the origins of the country of Russia. We'll begin by covering the various steppe nomad tribes that mingled and assimilated in the area now known as Ukraine starting over 2,500 years ago, and follow their path through the centuries to the earliest signs of a united Russian cultural identity. Let's begin. Today we'll be talking about the origins of the country of Russia. With me I have my good friend Phil Downey. Oh. And uh, this subject was his suggestion, so thank you, Phil, for the suggestion. No problem. Should be a, should be an interesting show. Um, so the idea of where a country as big as Russia comes from is a pretty big idea and uh, had it's a bit of trouble to me, man. <laughs> had a bit of trouble narrowing down exactly where to start on this. But uh, ultimately, I figured, hey, well, let's just talk about the area where Russia sort of grew up and, and what was happening in there. We'll do a quick overview of that um, and basically all the different people who sort of flowed through that area. Because the area that we're talking about for, for where Russia started was just above the Black Sea, uh, where Ukraine is now. So on the very west of, of what the entirety of Russia is, right? So um, in, in a lot of ways, Ukraine is actually the seat of, of what became Russia. And um, yeah, given what's happening in the world today, uh, it's kind of interesting. A little bit. But um, what, uh, what I figured I'd go over is, is, you know, there's so many people over history that sort of flowed through this region. Because you have to remember, it's, it's just above the Black Sea. It's sort of this corridor of, of plains between Asia and Europe. And it sort of funneled people through between the Black Sea and the Ural Mountains to the north. Mm-hmm. And it's just this nice, easy corridor. And tons and tons of people moved through. So uh, that's where we're going to start today. Was there anything you wanted to ask to kick things off? or you Yeah, I think s- I'm good, man. All right, we'll just start with the rundown. Let's do it. So Russian identity, in a lot of ways, is Slavic identity. They tie Russian identity very much to uh, the ethnicity of, of being Slavic. Okay, so Slavic peoples today include the Russians, uh, the Poles, a number in the the Baltic states, so like Yugoslavia, Serbia, Bosnia, places like that. But the people that that ethnic Slavs today are descended from weren't always really that important in the region. The area just above the Black Sea, there's a river there called the Dnieper River, and that's that's where sort of Ukraine is, is centered now. 
civilizations tend to kind of come up around rivers. It makes a lot of sense. You need agriculture to have a civilization because agriculture leads to an abundance of labor. <laughs> an abundance of food, yeah. An abundance of labor because not everyone's hunting and gathering. Yeah. And it leads to wealth, which needs keeping track of. And the way you keep track is writing. How does it lead to wealth? Because when you spend all your time hunting and gathering, you don't have time for anything else. It's mm-hmm. very, very... It has low um, yield for the amount of work you're putting in. Farming, on the other hand, you can get quite a bit of food for a lot less labor. I'm not trying to imply that farming is easy, but <laughs> yeah. compared Easier to... than hunting and gathering. Compared to... <laughs> rummaging for nuts and berries and <laughs> trying to kill animals which is all very intensive yeah, and yeah. sort of uncertain i mean with uh with a farm you can take a day off to do something else because you know your food's going to be there tomorrow so more free time absolutely more, more free time means development of education and things like that gotcha. and without that writing that kind of comes along with with agriculture which starts off as just keeping a tally of how much grain there is and it kind of goes from there yeah Without that literacy, it's very difficult to keep any sort of history other than an oral history, which is really, which is really unreliable. So we don't know a lot of information about the people who moved into that region because that region is mostly plains. But the civilizations that started up along the top of the Black Sea, uh, the first ones that we know of are called the, uh, the Cimmerians. And this is about a thousand years BCE, so about 3000 years ago. And these people were probably from the region that's now Bulgaria. They were known as Thracians. So I've heard of them before. Yeah, they were sort of known. I know to that the, there are people. <laughs> they were sort of known to the to the uh, the Greeks, which is why we know who they are. Gotcha. Uh, they had some interaction with the Greeks, but we don't know a ton about the Cimmerians. What we do know is that they're the first sort of notable people that had any sort of trade with people that we have records with. And an ongoing theme that we'll see with with these early people anyway is that we don't have a lot of direct records about them. What we do have is records of people who interacted with them. Okay. Which is unfortunate because you're getting a very indirect picture of these people. A lot of times... Telephone game. Yeah, absolutely. It's an issue of telephone game. A lot of times people don't really conceive of outgroups as human beings at this point in time which is awkward but it's it's kind of the reality of the situation no it's fine man don't worry about it (laughs) so a lot of times you'll get a much more barbaric picture of people than might actually be the truth within their own society so around the 7th century bce you get a people called the scythians moving in those ones you would probably also have heard of nope (laughs) all right i figured with the thracians maybe the scythians nah man Again, we're not entirely sure where these people started from. Some people think they might have been Mongolian in origin. Other people think maybe Persian in origin. Soviet scholars thought that they might actually be Slavic in origin. However, Soviet scholars were very intent on finding a sort of common Slavic thread through all of history. So it's hard to really really say how that thread uh, plays out. Everyone's Slavic. Only the Slavs are Slavic, though. But everyone. Original Slavic is best Slavic. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we know a lot about the Scythians because of a guy called uh, Herodotus, uh, who was a Greek person in in, uh, 5th century BCE Greece. Question. Yes. How do you spell Scythian? S-C-Y-T-H-I-A-N. Is that where they got the name from Sword and Sorcery? Probably. Probably. 
so awesome. Yes. Sorry to derail. Continue. No, not at all. Not at all. Sword so, and Sorcery is a great game. Go play it. This is not this episode, by... This episode brought to you by Sword and Sorcery. <laughs> Sword and Sorcery by Super Brothers. Go play it now. It's out on iOS and uh, just go play it. Anyways. Anyways. Herodotus was this guy who had really radical ideas about how history should work. And sorry, who is this guy? Herodotus. No. He was a Greek. Why are we talking about historian? Him? Because he knew about. He was the one that told us all about the Scythians. Gotcha. This is where all of our information comes from. He said, "Hey, instead of just listening to random stories that people tell me, maybe I should go places and take a look for myself." Seems like a good idea. This was a radical idea at the time. Hmm. So he's actually considered father of history in a lot of ways because he was intent on finding primary sources for this information, and he would actually take his sources and sort of. Um, and sort of analyze them for credibility. Okay. So if he only had a story to go off of, he would say, he would relate his story and then he would say, I think this is likely because of X, or I think this is made up because of this other information that I have. And no one before Herodotus had actually done this. So Herodotus talked about the Scythians as this interesting combination of nomadic horse archers, uh, which is really com- which is really common for the plains at this point in time. And this group of, like, this small core of farmers. So while they were considered sort of the same people, what you would have was this small nucleus of, of, uh, of farmers living in small villages near the, near the rivers. Then you would have groups of warriors who are horse archers. Horse archers are going to be another really common theme. When you have big open plains, one of the most effective forms of warfare is to start riding a horse from, like, age three and learn how to shoot a bow from one very, very effectively. That's really early. Very, very early. They got him on a horse as soon as possible. Dang. Mm-hmm. So this worked really well for them because they had a steady f- source of food, but they also had very strong military protection, right? Yep. So, again, skip forward a few centuries in, uh, in history. There's a people called the Sarmatians in about the 2nd century BCE who definitely came from Iran. That one, we finally actually have a source. Uh, what is our source? It's, it's, basically, um, it's, it's basically evidence from these people themselves who finally actually had some sort of writing as to where they came from. So the Sarmatians okay. themselves said that they came from Iran. It also comes down to uh, archaeological evidence. So you would find things in this region. That match stuff from Iran. Exactly. Exactly. And these people were, again, nomads for the most part, but they were nomadic cattle herders. And so they would still... But but what happened... So, like, they take their cattle with them? Yeah, they were like cowboys, but en masse. Sweet. Driving their herds across the open plains. Russian cowboys. Now, what's interesting about the Sarmatians is that when they came in, they didn't so much as, you know, slaughter all Scythians and and completely remove the society from the face of the earth. Nah, because that wouldn't be cool. (laughs) We'll see some of that later. Okay. (laughs) Promise? Promise. As they kind of came in and they said, hey, this societal structure is working real well, let's take it. So while the Sarmatians came in and they took over and they were the ruling class, there were definitely still people descended from the Scythians there and they were using the Scythian way of life and... They sort of had this synthesis of, of Sarmatian and Scythian society, culture, government. So is the idea they just kind of like said, hey, we want to be here too, and everyone more or less got along, sort of? I wouldn't paint it as 
peacefully as that <laughs> necessarily. Okay, but so they came along and they ended up living together without complete and utter destruction of the Scythians. Essentially, yeah, because when you look at warfare on and 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 uh, struggle on sort of a cultural level. I mean, at the end of the day, most people just want to grow enough food for their family to get by. Yep. They don't have such strong uh, allegiance to their current government or to even their current people that they see an invading force as necessarily the worst thing in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, it's bad. You could get killed in fighting, but why not just let these guys take over and keep living your life as you've always lived it? What year are we at, roughly, right now? We're talking about 200 years BCE, so okay. about 2200 years ago. Are there... There are must, there must be empires existing at this point, though, right? To some extent, I mean the the uh, the Roman Empire is just starting to come up, mm-hmm. but they're still fairly centralized in in Italy. Yeah, they're starting to spread a little bit along the Mediterranean. Nowhere close to where we're talking here. Okay, so so would these guys know that empire is a thing that even is possible at this point? Like, how well does that sort of information travel? It doesn't travel as well as you might think it would. I mean... Like, would they have even heard of it? Would they know that Rome is a thing? At this point, probably not. If they had heard of the Romans, they wouldn't think that much of them. Uh, At this point, Rome was a fairly regional power. They would probably be more concerned with the Greek states, who actually sort of were were sending out colonies. They were trading here and there across the Mediterranean and slightly into Asia. Mm Mm-hmm. So do you think that might have been any sort of inspiration for them to actual set, actually settle down instead of stick to the nomadic lifestyle? Not particularly. I mean, you do get some of that sort of transfer of information, mm-hmm. but it's also a matter of convenience. It's much easier to live in one spot than it is to live a, re- a very difficult life as a nomad. Okay. So this is probably just speaking to my ignorance, but why, why nomadic lifestyle in the first place? Did, did it just not occur to anybody to you know plop down and start farming stuff? It's a function of being a hunter-gatherer, really. I mean, you're looking at... When when you're looking at a plane system, any any hunting that you're going to be doing is animals with very, very wide range. And you can't just sit in one spot and hope that they come by. You have to go to them, which means riding miles to find anything. So is the idea then that... Like the... Is the idea then that nomads just really weren't all like six, that successful in Russia... Sorry, the area that would become Russia, but these cultures that had started doing the agricultural idea, that actually was starting to work. This is actually a really central conflict to the birth of Russia, which is that nomadic lifestyles aren't particularly successful on metrics like civilization, literacy, uh, government, wealth, like economic power. Even, even cultural stability. Mm-hmm. So like this idea of a continuation of people. However, they are very, very good at warfare. And at this point in time, being smarter doesn't necessarily mean that you can protect yourself, yourself from roving bands of scythian horse archers <laughs> like you know you know what i mean like okay that sort of barbarian threat is still a very real thing so what would sort of happen was if you are living in a town and you are li- or you're living on a farm and you've got this one piece of land and you're going to you're born on this farm and you're going to die on this farm and that's a perfectly fine life in fact it's a fairly good life compared to what some people have 
you're not going to be on a horse from age three. You're not going to spend every day practicing your archery. So what you get is that when these bands of horse archers who keep coming through and will keep coming through as we talk, they come in, they roll over whoever is there. Then they kind of look at their life and go, hang on, this isn't so bad. And they sort of fill that void. Okay. And they settle down. Okay. And they get a little bit softer than they used to be when they were when they were horse Wash, archers. Rinse, repeat. And it keeps on going. So so far, I mean, we've had people that we're not we're really sure of where they're coming from, but we've had people possibly from Bulgaria, from Mongolia, from Persia, definitely some that came from uh, Iran. Okay. So so a, a subset of Persian, and they've all come into this area, and they keep sort of they keep sort of layering culture over one another. So is there any indication as to what, you know, may have started that whole settling idea instead of just, you know, always being a nomad? What what got the first people to stick around? It's something that kind of came up organically in a number of places in the world. And it's always around rivers. Rivers are very important to civilization. Rivers, you mentioned that. <laughs> rivers swell in the spring and they deposit sediment on the banks, which makes for very rich soil. Rivers allow a steady source of food from fish. Rivers allow a good method of transportation. Because, I mean, a horse dragging a barge beside a river goes faster than any other way to transport a large amount of goods for the next thousand years. Dang. Until, well, I mean, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but until the Romans build roads and have, like, huge wagon trains... Even those aren't really faster than dragging a barge beside a river. So I suppose what I would kind of guess here is that, you know, a couple of nomadic folk end up by a river at some point and they see, hey, maybe we can fish here. Say they stick around for a bit and discover all these benefits eventually. From from what I understand, I, and I mean a lot of this is speculation. It kind of gets more into anthropology than than history, really. But what's the what's the short code for anthropology? Short code. <laughs> what's the acronym for anthropology? This is HI one hundred one. We need what AN one hundred one? Yeah, something like that. Sister podcast coming soon. <laughs> it's not run by me. Nope, or uh, me. <laughs> <laughs> what they think probably happened is. When you have a group of hunter-gatherers, especially nomads, they don't just wander aimlessly. What they do is they follow animals on a cycle, right? Because, say, herds of reindeer, if we're talking Siberia, are going to follow the same pattern of migration each year, right? Sure, yeah. Let's jump from Ukraine right to Siberia. It's still Russia, right? Well, I mean, this is a place where these these nomads are coming from. Yeah, yeah. So you're going to be following these herds of animals on this pattern, and they follow a same pattern every single year. Makes sense. After a while, you get used to coming back to the same places. You go, hey, I recognize this valley. And after a while, you notice every time you come to this valley, there are incredibly good edible plants in this one spot. Okay. So it incentivizes them to come check this place out again. They say, maybe we could stay here. Exactly. I got it. Sort of grows organically out of that. And I mean, you've got civilizations coming up around the Nile, around the Tigris and Euphrates uh, in, in Iran, the, the Fertile Crescent. You've got people coming up around the Ganges in India. Uh, what's the river in China? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick myself for this later. But 
you have these you have these let's ask google what's that river in china <laughs> you have these major rivers all around the world where these these kernels of civilization are starting and it's because of these factors that sort of come together to make it a very that make it very easy to begin the process of converting to uh, an agricultural society in these places yeah makes sense mm-hmm. so let's jump back into uh into ukraine yes slight derail there another people that you've heard of the goths yep germanic mm-hmm. come into the area they, they come in during the first to fourth century common era so we're talking in the last 1600 years or so yep. they kind of slowly flow into the area and they do the exact same thing that the sarmatians did they just layer right on top of what's already there existing as infrastructure. So they're this sort of like loose confederation of tribes. And eventually these Goths are going to end up way over in Europe. These are the people that are going to sort of break down the Roman Empire. Yeah. But they all flowed through here from Scandinavia. So this, this area of the world is very much a, a funnel for all of these tribal people coming through and heading into Europe. Sorry, where were these guys coming from? Scandinavia. So up in um, Finland, uh, Sweden, Norway, all that. Nice. Heading south then? Heading, heading south and west. Now we get to something known. I, I don't normally like pronouncing words in other languages, but this one's so great. It's called the Volkerwanderung, which is this great migration of people. Okay, that sounds rather German. It's very German because <laughs> the Huns come through. Okay. And the Huns were the baddest of the bad. They were seriously messing things up in the 4th century. These are the people who would eventually beat down the, the walls of, of Rome and end the Roman Empire. But the thing is, they started way out in Asia. No one's sure ethnically where the Huns started because, again, they were horse warriors they had no written language they had an oral tradition which we don't really know and there's sort of these waves of these tribes coming through pushing people further and further into europe from these bad places so whoever was the 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 meanest kid on the block before all of a sudden looks like nothing compared to this next wave right okay so slight question i've always been aware that the huns you know they spanned all of asia mm-hmm. but i mean how long does it take to span Asia on horseback? Not that long. No? Like years? Decades? It depends on who's in your way. But I mean, <laughs> the Mongols were very capable of doing it in a, a handful of years. Wow. It really depends on a lot of factors. But you're I mean, talking I've about... I've seen a map. That's a big landmass. <laughs> you're talking about people who grow up on horses. They're riding horses that are built for long distance running. Yeah. You're... You're crossing what are essentially flat plains, and you can get a lot of distance very quickly like that. And this is also land that you can just put your horses to pasture on, so you don't have to worry about baggage trains, supply lines, anything like that. So these people were very mobile. So these Huns, they push right through this area that we're talking about in Ukraine. They push the Goths out into, into Europe. The people known as as the uh, the Visigoths, the West Goths, ended up in Spain, so all the way through Europe. Damn. The Ostrogoths, the East Goths, end up in Italy. So they were the first. This was where the first waves of people attacking the actual city of Rome come in, right? Uh, the Turks, who are actually an Asiatic people, were pushed down south into what's now Turkey. Where were they? 
also in the also in also in Asia in these Great Plains okay. that are sort of just south of of Siberia. Okay. So they were actually pushed. So so the Turks, you kind of think of them down sort of closer to to Iran almost, right? They're actually an Asiatic people as well originally. And the thing about the Huns was they didn't stop there like some of the other ones did. So a lot of them just sort of stopped in Ukraine. They're like, hey, this is good enough. I'm staying here. The Huns had their eyes set on Rome and they went for it. And it just left this entire, like this huge power vacuum in the area. So all of these people who had been there for centuries and centuries were still there, but the people sort of ruling over them, gone. What you get in this power vacuum is a people called the Avars, who were a mix of Turkish, Mongolian, and Chinese, actually. And they formed this little uh, empire in the region. But at this point in time, this, this tiny tribe of people called the Slavs sort of insinuated themselves into the culture. So you started getting Slavic language cropping up in a more significant way. Sorry, the hmm? Slavs are yes. the Avar people? or the, the Avars are this mix of Turkish, Mongolian, and Chinese. Yep. But the Slavs sort of form this, this this second class, if you want to call it that. They're not the ruling elites. Okay. But they made themselves a very important part of society in this area. And they came from where? Everyone else who was just in the area before the... The Slavic tribe, we're pretty sure, came sort of from the Poland area of things. And, um, and so sort they're of... just a yet, a yet another group of people that showed up in the area? Essentially, yeah. And we don't really exactly know from where because we just don't have any records of it. And the Avars... They were powerful enough to start taking on the Byzantine Empire, which is down in in Turkey, or what's now Turkey, Constantinople. And while they were eventually defeated by Constantinople, the biggest thing that the Avars bring to the the party is this, uh, this Slavic component. And although the Avars themselves were defeated, now all of a sudden the Slavs are this force to be reckoned with. Uh, in the area that doesn't really ever go away. So we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about sort of how the Slavs go from this undercurrent within the area to the most powerful uh, ethnic group within Ukraine. Sounds good. And we're back. I'm here with Phil, and we're talking about the origins of Russia. Yep. Now, when we left off, uh, the Avar people had just sort of taken over ruling within the area that is now Ukraine, and the Slavic people had sort of come in as not a ruling group within the within the area, but certainly a, a very important cultural one and one that made up a significant economic contribution to to the area. Now, around the 9th century, so, so we, we left off in the 6th century, things kind of c- continued status quo for about 300 years. It was a fairly small region that we're talking about, sort of around uh, where Kiev is now in Ukraine. Yep. Uh, they had a little bit of trade with Byzantium, or what would have been called Constantinople. We call it Byzantium just sort of for uh, convenience to show the continuity between the Roman Empire and the Byzantine Empire, they themselves wouldn't have considered any any break. They Constantinople was established as a second Rome. And while we talk about the Roman Empire falling, 
in Constantinople, they would say, well, it never fell. It just moved. Right? Yep. So they had trade with Constantinople, which works out pretty well for them. And things sort of continued on as it was for a couple hundred years. Until we get to the ninth century and the Vikings come into things. Oh, great. That'll be (laughs) fine. Wouldn't worry about it. Probably just skip this part, right? (laughs) Now, like the the key thing here to, to note is that everybody came into this region. Everybody ended up here at some point in time. What happened in the ninth century is that Kiev got a little bit uppity and they attacked Constantinople. Those buggers. And they certainly didn't win, but they actually held their own pretty well. This isn't a thing that happens often. Constantinople is a force to be reckoned with. So these guys made a bit of an impression? So they made a bit of an impression. They became very well respected. But this Viking guy up in a city called Novgorod. I've heard of that one. (laughs) This ruler called Prince Oleg. I haven't heard of him. That's okay. Should I have? He was... No. I mean, that's <laughs> this, that's why we're doing this podcast, right? Is to find out about these guys. Oh, yeah. There's so much... Like, side questions I would ask if I was had four hours of your time here. <laughs> <laughs> if only. So, Oleg would have considered himself Varangian. But he was a Viking. He was from uh, Norway. He would have considered himself what? Varangian. V-A-R-A-N-G-I-A-N. Okay, two things. First sure. thing, that sounds like an awesome word. Second thing, what mm-hmm. the heck are they? Vikings, essentially. Uh, okay. I mean, not all Vikings were in this little... Yeah, not all Vikings are Vikings, but all Vikings are Vikings. That's one way of putting it. There we go. <laughs> Moving on. He, he was about as Viking as you can get. He heard about this war. He said, that sounds like a great city. <laughs> now, Novgorod is north of of Kiev. Okay. It's not right on the coast of the North Sea, but it's relatively close. And Oleg looked at a map, or probably didn't. He probably didn't have a map. (laughs) Oleg knew that essentially you could draw a line from the North Sea through his city of Novgorod, through Kiev, to the Black Sea, and on the other side of the Black Sea was Constantinople. And he went... I want that. As Vikings are wont to want. <laughs> Absolutely. So in eight, in 878, Oleg goes a Viking. And <laughs> I don't know if you know this. When Vikings go out, they call it I Viking. That is oh, the act amazing. of Vikinging. <laughs> so he goes a Viking. And he attacks uh, the city of Kiev. But instead of sacking it as would usually be what happens when you attack a city at this point in time he decides to extend a hand say hey let's let's be friends let's all be a part of this whole thing that i rule so he didn't sack it i mean there was a little bit of sack <laughs> so he, he like semi-sacked it and was like so i could finish you guys off or basically he <laughs> offered them an opportunity he offered them a choice that wasn't really a choice he said <laughs> Let's combine the forces of our two cities and the surrounding area and make something really happen here. Okay. Right? Now, this is the first point in time where you start hearing anything that sounds uh, even close to the idea of Russian. This, well, you can even call it an empire. You can start calling this an empire at this point. They called it Kievan Rus. R-U-S. And we're not entirely sure where the name comes from exactly. There are a number of theories about it usually stemming from kind of obscure language terms. Long story short, 
Hmm? Do you know which language? Usually Slavic languages, because usually, again, this is Soviet historians that are trying to draw this neat little line. There are a number of theories out there. Long story short, we don't know for sure. Bummer. We're not going to get into the theories. It's not worth it. But what is important is they started calling themselves Rus. Ah. Yes. You can see where we're going with this. No, I don't. (laughs) Please explain. I don't get it. When Oleg conquered... Kiev, he decided Kiev was a better city than his old city of Novgorod, decided to base everything out of Kiev, hence Kievan Rus. Yep. And he basically said, hey, Slavs, like, you guys seem to have your act together. Why them in particular? Just because they were, like, socially coherent? Throughout those 300 years, yes, they were socially coherent. They formed a, a major cultural basis of what had been sort of this this um, Avar uh, remnant in the yeah. area. But they were also very powerful economically. They were the ones sort of, like at, over these 300 years, they sort of started driving this trade with yeah. Byzantium. It's not that no one else did, but they yeah. happened to be very good they at it. They just got their shit together a little bit better than everybody else. Exactly. So he basically said, hey Slavs, let's make this work. And they said, sure, why not? We don't want to die. <laughs> I mean... Not dying is a pretty good thing. Let, it is let's a, continue going with that one. It's pretty good. And Oleg, again, he was a very crazy man in 907, went, you know what? Let's attack Constantinople again. <laughs> okay. Why not? Fairly successfully. So successfully that Byzantium offered Kievan Rus a free trade agreement. This is unheard of at this point in time. Okay. couple things. Sure. Maybe just one thing, though. What is a free trade agreement? A free trade agreement is an agreement between two political parties that they will not put tariffs on goods coming in from the other one. So normally what you would do, say you are Britain and I am France. Okay? I'm right with this. And we both have, I don't know, let's say sheep. Okay. We're both growing, we're both, we're both producing wool. Uh-huh. Right? But France is much bigger. France is much bigger, has many more sheep, can offer wool at a better price. Britain's going to look at this and go, okay, well... Screw all this French wool. (laughs) Essentially, they're saying, we don't want all of our money going to France for their wool. So what they're going to do is they're going to put a tariff on it, which makes, in Britain, it makes French wool more expensive than British wool, encourages people to buy British wool, makes them a little money on the side. I think the CRTC uses something like this. It's a very common tactic. It happens everywhere. It's still incredibly common. Yeah. So what what they managed to do in this free trade agreement is agree with Byzantium not to put any tariffs, that neither side will put any tariffs on trade between the two parties. And what they've managed to establish is this whole line that stretches all the way from the North Sea. So people in Scandinavia, so all the the Vikings up there, yep. are able to trade freely with Constantinople through this corridor. Mm-hmm. And this is, it, it's, it's, it's important for a couple of reasons. It makes both parties much more wealthy, but especially the Vikings. It's better for the Vikings than it is for anyone else. Because they're able to sell their stuff in Constantinople without getting taxed through the nose. Exactly. It's also very good for Kiev and Rus because when you are on a trade route that is as important as this one, there are many, many benefits to that uh, increased trade, increased traffic. Yep. It's also important in that this is really the first time that Constantinople acknowledged any sort of 
political entity as equal to them. They still very ha- very much had the mindset that they were a con- uh, continuation of the Roman Empire. Okay, so slight, slight question here then. Did this attack on Constantinople, was it like successful or was it kind of a situation where they're like, okay, we've taken enough hits now, let's stop this now by giving them this free trade thing? Constantinople was not taken in this attack. It wasn't traditionally considered successful. Okay. What it did was scare the Byzantines. So they figured might as well get these guys kind of on their side so they don't rearm and do it again? Basically. They decided that the risk was the risk of alienating these people and allowing them to regroup and come back, the risk was too far greater than to actually make friends with them. They were worried that even though this time wasn't successful, the, the next time might be. So this free trade agreement led to basically a, a hundred years of prosperity for Kiev, Kiev and Rus. It okay. was incredibly good for them. Over this time... Are they still being uh, controlled by uh, Oleg? Uh, well, I mean, Oleg dies, but his heirs, yes. Yeah. The, there's sort of a Varangian... Oh, he lives for hundreds of years. Don't worry about it. <laughs> There's sort of a, a, a Varangian upper class, but I mean, the Slavs are also making up a big part of the ruling classes as well. Kievan Rus was made up, this is a good time to talk about it actually, Kievan Rus was made up of a number of small cities in this area, which was fairly large, but a number of small cities around, and they each made up sort of a province okay. of Kievan Rus, so they would, uh, they would rule this small area around each one. So while the the people ruling in Kiev were descendants of Oleg and were Varangians. Many of the heads of the, these smaller principalities yep. were Slavic. Okay. So they were definitely gaining political power as well as economic power. Good for them. Mm-hmm. Good on you, Slavs. We get to a man called Yaroslav the Wise. In That's probably not important. <laughs> The great thing about Russian history is that they they always give you like nicknames <laughs> to let you know when like, someone is especially important. You guys can't see this, but I screwed up my face just when he said Yaroslav. When he added the wise, there's like, oh come on. <laughs> <laughs> I love Yaroslav the wise. He's a great guy. He's a very good character. I'm sure history paints him as such. <laughs> He's a very interesting guy. Yaroslav the wise is actually very instrumental to Russian history, though. He. Well, I'll give, I'll give you a few examples of things that he did to make the place more Russian. He was the first to convert to Orthodox Christianity, okay. which today is a very big component of Russian yep. uh, cultural heritage. He was the first to create written laws for the area. Were written laws pretty common in any sort of civilization, civilizations at the time? It's one of those things that's sort of... You don't, you don't want to say that civilization necessarily has one set path, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of commonalities to paths that sure. civilizations yeah, take. so it's an aspect that shows up every once in a while. It's something that generally comes along relatively early in a civilization. Yep. Not always. Sometimes it's more delayed. But you see sort of like, have you ever heard of the Code of Hammurabi? from playing Civ. <laughs> the Code of Hammurabi, we're way off track here, but the, co- the Code of Hammurabi was this this legal code in Babylon thousands of years ago where he actually took a pillar and had his laws carved into this, this pillar where anyone could go and read the laws. And it was very detailed. If you stole a loaf of bread, you had your hand cut off. Sorry, when is, was this? 
Oh, we're talking like two, three thousand years BCE. I I don't quote me on that. This is a very long time ago. I thought this was way back when. But this is also in Mesopotamia, which was very, very advanced. This is one of the first places we know about civilization. So anyone could go and they could see that if one crime was committed, this is the punishment. They were brutal punishments. But the point is that justice became a universal thing. Yeah. There's like a standard that you're being held to now and it's over there. Before, basically whoever had the biggest stick got to say whatever happened to everyone else. It's sort of a hallmark of civilization. And that's what Yaroslav put in place. He went, guys, we're like 2000 years late to the party. Let's write down some laws. Okay. Okay. So it was it was very uh, it, it was it was integral to sort of establishing Rus as a legitimate state because before it's kind of this weird amalgam of uh, step tribes turned farmers ruled by Vikings. Like it's and I mean that's that's definitely a big part of of Russian identity is this sort of meeting of different cultures. Mm-hmm. But in terms of legitimacy, especially as it appears to outsiders, operating that way doesn't make you look that formidable, right? Yeah. It kind of looks like people playing at being a state. <laughs> yeah. So Yaroslav came along and he, yeah, like I said, uh, Orthodox Christianity, first written laws. He started building cathedrals, so lots of public works projects, improving infrastructure. What was this guy's position like? Other than the fact that he did all these things, like, why did anyone notice that he was doing them? Well, he was a descendant of Oleg. So he, okay. was, he was ruler of Kievan Rus. Oh, wow. So they had this period with, with Yaroslav that was sort of this, this golden age of Kievan Rus. Mm-hmm. He managed to keep the different principalities from squabbling. He implemented all these major political and social changes. He uh, set out this infrastructure for sort of a a commonality of of culture of government of language of religion mm-hmm. all these things that sort of brought kiev and rus together what language just out of curiosity that's a good question as far as i know it was a slavic language it wouldn't be exactly what you, it, it's it would be slavic in the way that old english was english <laughs> sure. or in the way that anglo-saxon was yeah. english so not but definitely a precursor yeah, some sort of precursor mm-hmm and one other interesting thing about Yaroslav was that he was the first primordially Russian ruler to be given the title Tsar. Okay. Now, the title Tsar is an interesting one. Mm-hmm. It is the Slavic version of the word Caesar. Okay. So this title was given to him by the Byzantines, not by the, the Russians. Yeah. So this was the kind of thing that you know, no one would actually call him Tsar Yaroslav. Right. But when he got a letter from the Byzantine emperor... Then it was addressed to... Tsar Yaroslav. And what this shows is sort of a, a, an equal footing. Interesting. And it very much legitimized Kievan Rus on a global scale, or at least on a, a European scale. Hmm. I never really thought of Caesar... Like, I knew Caesar was like something that the emperors used as part of their name. Mm-hmm. Never really considered as like a title, because it, it's always presented more like a surname. But when you word it, Tsar, um, I've already forgotten the guy's name. Caesar. No, the other one. Oh, Tsar Yaroslav. Yeah, him. Yeah. When you say it like that, it sounds like an actual title. But you know, when you're talking about like Augustus Caesar, Julius Caesar, 
there's probably a Julius Augustus Caesar. <laughs> the, yeah, I mean, Caesar definitely sort of took on a title sort of significance. Yeah. Julius Caesar was very... It was held in high esteem, and a lot of people wanted to associate themselves with Caesar. Yeah. Uh, keep in mind that the in, in Latin, it's pronounced Kaiser. Oh, really? Didn't the Germans. The Germans. Oh, Kaiser. Okay. Kaiser Wilhelm, for example. Mm-hmm. So when you hear about the Third Reich with Nazi Germany, yeah. what they're doing is is relating themselves back to the Holy Roman Empire. Holy Roman Empire being the First Reich. Yeah. Between 1870 and 1918 being the Second Reich, that's where you had the Kaisers. So mm-hmm. you had the unification of Germany, you get Kaiser Wilhelm. I never even, I had no idea that the, the, first, the first Reich was considered to be like the, the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire, which was considered to be uh, an extension of the original Roman Empire, mm-hmm. where Charlemagne took sort of the trappings of the Roman Empire and dressed Germany up in them, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. The, the classic line is that the Holy Roman Empire was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. <laughs> but there's this appropriation of sort of Roman... Whoever came up with that saying is my kind of person. <laughs> it's, it's very true, though. They, but they took mm-hmm. these symbols that were associated with Rome and they used it for a sense of legitimacy. And that happens throughout history. I mean, it's happened for the last 2,000 years. Czar, as a title, is no different than that. So by the end of Yaroslav's reign in 1054... Kievan Rus had. How did his how did his reign end? Death. Death. Natural death. Murdered. He. It was a natural death. No intrigue. People loved the guy. Yeah. He but, was very well liked. Let, let's be honest. I mean, being called the basically the Caesar of Kievan Rus is kind of a pretty big deal. <laughs> yes, and I mean, at that point, it was considered a title. It would be the same as calling him Emperor Yaroslav. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't. It doesn't have the same sort of beginning. Uh, connotations that Caesar, like Julius Caesar has, but yeah, still, yeah. I mean, he was very well respected by his enemies and his uh, and his allies. Yeah. By the end of his reign, Kievan Rus stretched all the way from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, from the North Sea to the Black Sea. He owned the Kerch Strait, which separates the Black Sea from Crimea, so mm-hmm. it controls um, access to the Sea of Azov. You've okay. seen you've seen maps of Crimea recently, right? You know, there's the 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 pass between Crimea and Russia. There's that little sea above it. Sure, let's pretend I know what you're talking about. <laughs> they owned all of that sea, which was very, very... Lucrative? Absolutely. Uh, trade route stuff, yeah. I assume? And fishing. Okay. Gotta love me some Crimean fish. And, uh, yeah, Kievan Rus was in the best shape it would ever be in. Now, unfortunately... Tragedy befalls us? Well... The problem with very charismatic leaders is that when they're gone... <laughs> yeah, that never ends well. When they're gone, they're no longer there to hold things together. So, Yaroslav dies in 1054. By 1140, so not even 100 years later, Rus had fragmented so badly politically that it was barely held together as a confederation of 12 principalities. Man, that's such a bummer. It is a bit of a bummer. Now... Some of the factors that we're talking about that caused this was lack of a major charismatic leader. The, the, the leaders weren't... They were no, they were no Yaroslavs. <laughs> Yaroslav 2.0. Um, Not the second 2.0. They invented that. <laughs> <laughs> the Byzantine Empire fell apart. Yeah. And without that major source of trade... Yeah. Their, uh, their clout kind of falls through the floor a bit too. Absolutely. And also, throughout this entire period, I mean, we haven't mentioned it yet, but... 
there's tremendous pressure from steppe nomads on their eastern border. There's still horse people coming through, <laughs> riding their horses since they were three, yeah. shooting bows really well. Mm-hmm. And throughout this whole period, they're fighting these people off. They're Just even expanding into their space. territory. Yeah, exactly. And finally, there's this rise of feudalism. Now, feudalism is this idea that you have lords, there are serfs under them, the serfs owe the lords economically, uh, in manpower, things like that. Yep. As this idea of feudalism took off, people felt more allegiance to their local prince in these yep. principalities than they did to the greater Rus. And the, the benefit that the the serfs got was, you know, protection and all that stuff, right? That of was course. kind of the trade-off there. You've got horse people coming. Yeah, they, they, please save me from the horse people wreckers of faces. That's absolutely where it came from. But, I mean, overall, what came out of this was this cultural mentality of identifying as Rus. So even though all of these people fragmented into various parts, they considered themselves Rus. They spoke the same language. They had the same religion. Mm-hmm. They had similar infrastructures. They had similar political systems. They could all call themselves Rus. And that's where you see really the, the kernel of, of Russian identity. And to be honest, uh, with a sufficiently charismatic leader coming into the picture again, they probably could have very easily united and turned into an incredibly powerful society. Could have. Unfortunately, the Mongols show up. Ah, goddamn Mongols. Always effing everything up. (laughs) Always. Every single time. So, with this anticipation of the mightiest of the mighty horse people on the horizon. <laughs> ah, yes, the super horse people. About to wreck things for Kievan Rus. I, uh, I think maybe we'll leave off there for right now. Oh, dear. Such intrigue. Much excite. Next time on HI101... We'll pick up with the Mongol invasion of Kievan Rus and examine the devastating effect it had on the fragile nation. Then, we'll see how the Russian people rallied together to build the basis for what is now the largest nation on earth. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check the correction post that accompanies this episode. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I've been your host, Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.